I first heard about degrowth in 2013 while attending a seminar here at Lund University. I remember the speaker was passionate, presenting the challenges of continued economic growth on a planet with finite resources. The speaker said the solution was degrowth, a reduction in resource extraction and production, while at the same time improving well-being for all. And while I'm certainly sympathetic to these ideas, I remember at the time feeling quite provoked, actually. Then, and even now, it's hard for me to fathom challenging the economic growth paradigm that we've come to accept as necessary. And I think this is why degrowth evokes such strong emotional and intellectual responses. But bear with me. In today's episode, we wish to explore degrowth as one proposed solution to reduce our environmental impact and improve well-being. And we will discuss the merits and critiques of economic growth and degrowth, both conceptually and practically, to allow for you to think critically and arrive at your own opinion. Welcome to the podcast, Advancing Sustainable Solutions. Our mission is to make sustainability research more accessible for society. This episode is produced at the IIIEE at Lund University and is hosted by Stephen Curtis and Catherine Schaub. with a new episode where we unpack the concept of degrowth. In today's episode, we will present the challenges of living with an economic system governed by infinite growth on a planet with finite resources. We will discuss key vocabulary to understand degrowth. And as this concept often evokes passionate debate, we will acknowledge some of the critiques and implications surrounding the degrowth concept. Ultimately, we wish to produce this episode to bring awareness to the concept of degrowth and introduce tangible suggestions of how individuals like you can act with degrowth in mind in your personal lives as well as your professional contexts. Now, we've done our very best to scour the interwebs, read all of the latest literature, and incorporate research to inform the content of this episode. As such, this episode is intended to be informational, a primer, so to speak. So we will be pointing out really interesting and cool resources throughout the episode, highlighting thought leaders and literature to support you to continue your own journey and think critically about degrowth. We also speak from our own perspectives and our department's experience conducting research and teaching at Lund University. We recognize the role that education and research have played at perpetuating this infinite economic growth paradigm. And as an institution, we wish to reflect on our own practices and include additional perspectives on degrowth, downscaling, and sufficiency in our curriculum. So shout out to current and future listeners listening to this podcast who are also trying to grapple with these concepts. We also wish to present more perspectives beyond an academic and conceptual understanding of degrowth. So later in this episode, we've actually invited Logan Stenshock, an alumnus of one of our master's programs called MESPOM. The MESPOM program is an Erasmus Mundus joint master's degree in environmental sciences, policy, and management. Logan shares his journey exploring and experimenting with degrowth-inspired actions, including leading trainings, contributing to organic farming, and encouraging sustainable urban transportation. So let's begin our journey where we explore the concept of degrowth.
To start with the problem of infinite economic growth, we must first understand what it means. Economic growth describes an increase in the production of economic goods and services, measured and compared from one period of time to another. Various metrics exist to measure economic growth, but the most common is gross domestic product, abbreviated GDP. Now, you've likely heard of this metric before because it's used anytime any talking head in the media talks about economic growth. Now, GDP measures the total monetary or market value of all of the finished goods and services produced within a country's borders over a specific time. Now, this captures things like individual consumption and investments, government spending, as well as a balance between the imports and exports into a given country. The metric most commonly used to measure how fast an economy is growing is called the GDP growth rate, which compares the yearly or quarterly change in a country's economic output. Now, GDP is an imperfect metric used to measure production, not welfare. This means that GDP will capture the manufacturing of weapons used against fellow humans, the incurred healthcare costs and overtime hours resulting from a pandemic, or the rebuilding of cities impacted by increasingly extreme floods, hurricanes, or forest fires as a result of climate change. And because economic growth only captures economic goods and services, activities outside of the formal economy are not included in GDP. And this really raises questions of equity and justice. For example, according to an Oxfam report published in 2020, women and girls globally contribute 12.5 billion hours of unpaid care work each and every day. I mean, that's a crazy statistic. If valued by the economy, this contribution would equate to at least $10.8 trillion a year, approximately three times the size of the global tech industry. So one can begin to see how GDP is a poor measure to assess welfare, and certainly it does not take into account equity and justice issues urgently needing to be addressed by our society. Yet GDP and infinite economic growth are pervasive across our society. This notion is integrated into business schools, into boardrooms, and even parliaments. Even if we turn to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, we see the influence of the economic growth paradigm. And sustained economic growth assumes that increasing GDP leads to an increase in income, creating greater disposable income to buy more, leading to a higher standard of living. However, this is really not often the case. If you want to read more about the correlation between growth and well-being, we suggest checking out the work by economists Richard Easterlin and the Income Happiness Paradox. Yeah, I remember reading about this, right? It's something about how up to a certain point, income does indeed correlate to happiness, but there's some leveling off beyond a certain income where income and well-being are no longer correlated. Some have even tried to assign an annual income to describe this point. I think I've read different estimates, Catherine, correct me if I'm wrong, somewhere between 12000 and 24000 US dollars per year in income. So while GDP may correlate to increases in income, the capital accumulation afforded by economic growth is not always equally distributed across society. So for example, in the United States, incomes for the bottom 90% of individuals grew more slowly compared to the incomes for the top 10% of earners. Had the incomes of the bottom 90% of earners kept up with GDP growth, they'd have collectively taken some 2.5 trillion US dollars more in income in 2018. 
So while our entire economic and social system is built and even relies on infinite economic growth, there are a growing number of voices calling into question infinite economic growth on a planet with finite resources. For this, we present an ecological critique of economic growth, drawing on research from ecological economics and bioeconomics. So if economic growth measures the total monetary value of all output in a society, we must consider what input is transformed to generate this output, right? Finished goods are a product of resources extracted from the earth and transformed by labor and the use of capital goods. Remember those things like buildings, machinery, and tools used in the production of goods and provision of services. Economics cannot ignore the limitations imposed by the laws of physics, those of the first and second laws of thermodynamics and the law of conservation of matter. Infinite growth assumes unlimited inputs used in production, which is simply incompatible with the fundamental laws of nature. Yet, as of 2017, we consumed more than 100 billion tons of natural resources annually, the most ever and more than quadrupling consumption compared to 1970. Resource extraction and the subsequent production contributes to biodiversity loss, land system change, chemical pollution, climate change, among many other impacts. It's worth mentioning the planetary boundaries as one conceptualization that captures our impact on the important biophysical and ecological systems that support humanity. Our actions have led to the transgression of at least four of the nine planetary boundaries. There are many political, technological, and social fixes that operate at the margins to address some of these problems. Ideas like the circular economy, the sharing economy, sustainable business models, even decentralized energy production. Yet these solutions work to make the current system more sustainable, where some argue we need to rethink infinite economic growth entirely and replace GDP as the success metric that dictates economic policy decisions. And here, degrowth is presented as one such idea. As always, we must start from a place of shared understanding of the problem and the vocabulary used to discuss the solution. So to ease our way into the vocabulary of degrowth, simply degrowth is a critique of infinite economic growth. Instead of the grow or die paradigm, degrowth envisions a future where human civilization lives within the biophysical limits of earth, calling for decreased production, more equitable distribution of money and resources, strengthened democratic institutions, as well as improved well-being for all. Thus far, we've been careful to be consistent to describe degrowth as a concept, an abstract idea, or a process able to be acted upon. But degrowth has multiple interpretations among different people. These multiple interpretations highlight the diversity of values, cultures, languages, and intellectual viewpoints that inform the concept. For some, degrowth recognizes the biophysical limits to growth. For others, degrowth seeks to offer prosperity without growth through living simply without excess. And others feel that we must liberate ourselves from capitalism and colonialism, motivated by something more than the pursuit of power and our own self-interest. 
And for so many already practicing degrowth, it embodies an ethos they are already living by. Because of the multiplicity of entry points for individuals and organizations, degrowth is more than just a concept. It's a social movement, a legitimate political philosophy, and a concrete economic policy proposal, all of which spans the globe. Let's look at the history of degrowth to demonstrate this. The notion of degrowth has been discussed philosophically for centuries, including among the anti-industrialists in the late 19th and early 20th century by the likes of William Morris, Henry David Thoreau, and Leo Tolstoy. However, its modern interpretation emerged in the 1960s and 70s as an intellectual debate pitting economics and ecology. The term décroissance, French for degrowth, was first used in 1972 by French intellectualist André Gortz. He was influenced by the Romanian economist Nicolas Georgesu Rogan, who had previously written that continued consumption of scarce resources will inevitably result in exhausting them completely. The foundations for bioeconomics, ecological economics, and degrowth are often attributed to this Romanian economist. However, he would go on to reject ecological economics as a vehicle to promote sustainable development, which he called snake oil, suggesting sustainable development is a scam, as in you cannot have development that is sustainable. He argued that there can never be a sustainable rate of resource extraction of non-renewable mineral resources like iron, lithium, and cobalt, as there will always exist a finite stock of these resources. This early philosophical debate informed the prominent publication called Limits to Growth by the Club of Rome published in 1972. This work represents the first major publication using computer analysis to model the impact of infinite economic growth and increasing population on resources. The conclusions reached by the authors advocate for some equilibrium to be reached to sustain the basic material needs of everyone on Earth while managing resource consumption sustainably. As such, the authors do not advocate for degrowth as such, but the publication is widely known and recognized to be among the early criticisms of infinite economic growth. During the early years of degrowth, the focus was on resource depletion. Yet, this philosophical debate waned into the 1980s with the rise of neoliberalism. But by the 1990s and early 2000s, décroissance, or degrowth, was once again taken up among the French environmental activists and intellectuals. Among them is most notably the French economist Serge Latouche, who agrees with George Rogan that sustainable development is really an oxymoron. We just cannot have any kind of development that is at the same time sustainable. Degrowth as an organized social movement began in Lyon, France, in the early 2000s, and those associated with the movement were advocating for car-free cities, communal meals, and even campaigned against advertising. By 2006, the movement spread to Italy and Spain. Environmentalists and anti-globalists had taken up aspects of degrowth in their own pursuits. Now, of course, I could go on about the influence of the early social movements, and potentially we should spend more time discussing this, because in researching this episode, I was inspired to read the so many stories of individuals driven to act by the knowledge or values that they possessed, from writing literature to engaging in politics, creating community organizations, and this one was funny, even embarking on a pilgrimage by donkey to distribute leaflets about degrowth. For me, this reminds me that, as individuals, Individuals, we have more or less agency to act within our contexts in line with our values. 
I agree. And it's even possible to have agency within even traditional institutions with entrenched norms and protocols like academia. For example, by 2008, the first international conference on degrowth was held in Lyon, organized by the Academic Collective Research and Degrowth, with subsequent conferences held every year or two. Even in Malmö in 2018, just a short train ride from where we are located in Lund. Here, for those wishing to learn more about the history of degrowth, its philosophical underpinnings, and its practical solutions, I just want to pause for a second and recommend two books which I was inspired by in understanding degrowth for this episode. The first book is called Degrowth, A Vocabulary for a New Era. And it's really cool. It's a compilation of 51 short essays by many recognizable contributors. The second book we can recommend is called Less Is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World by Jason Hickel. This book is quite accessible and Hickel is a clear communicator and you can find him on social media actively advocating for degrowth. But we won't leave you hanging and leave it to you to read these books. Let's discuss the specific goals of degrowth and provide some further examples of policy proposals and individual actions with degrowth in mind. Just to summarize all of this information that we've just given you, we have said that degrowth is a critique of infinite economic growth and suggested broadly that degrowth is a concept, a social movement, and a political philosophy. So it is not just only an economic perspective. These theoretical activist and political perspectives on degrowth all advocate in some way for changes to our current economic system that recognize the biophysical limits on the economy. Now, let's continue to expand our understanding of degrowth and explore its goals, policy proposals, and individual actions. For this, we highlight the work by Inez Cosme, Rui Santos, and Dan O'Neill, who conducted a systematic analysis of published literature on degrowth between 2007 and 2014. Synthesizing all of this literature, they propose three overarching goals of degrowth and provide approximately 75 specific policy proposals to realize these goals. Now I will share three goals of degrowth. The first goal is to reduce the environmental impact of human activity as a result of unlimited production and consumption. The second goal is to redistribute income and wealth both within and between countries. And the third goal is to transition from a materialistic society to a more inclusive and participatory society. Okay, so this feels important in our understanding of degrowth. And for me, it always helps to break down ideas into smaller parts to remember the larger ideas, right? So these three goals, reduce, redistribute, transition, reduce, redistribute, transition, RRT, reduce environmental impact, redistribute income and wealth equitably, and transition from a materialistic to a more inclusive society. We should also say that even these goals are shifting and expanding as environmental, climate, and social justice become more important in the face of increasing inequality and increasing carbon dioxide emissions. We can see this as degrowth has been prominently discussed at COP26 taking place in Glasgow right now in November 2021. For example, at the COP26 Coalition People Summit, there were at least three events focusing on degrowth. For example, 
in reimagining the economic system and within social justice movements. Actually, world leaders are also using similar rhetoric to signal the need to shift our means of production and distribution. For example, the president of Bolivia said the solution to the climate crisis will not be achieved with more green capitalism or more global carbon markets. The solution is civilizational change to move towards an alternative model to capitalism. So what may be some of the economic and social policy proposals with degrowth in mind? Well, replacing GDP as the success metric is a good first place to start. Remember, GDP only measures production, not welfare. Therefore, other metrics are suggested that measure well-being, right? Such as the Gross National Happiness Index, already used by Bhutan to guide the government's policy making and enshrined in their constitution. The Gross National Happiness Index measures many things, including sustainable and equitable development, environmental conservation, preservation and promotion of culture, as well as good governance. Proponents also suggest degrowth would lead to people working fewer hours in paid employment. Recall, economic growth is a function of improvements in technology and increased human capital, leading to increased efficiency and more finished goods. But in a degrowth society, efficiency and productivity gains would equate to fewer hours worked instead of more finished goods. And those spare hours could translate into individuals being able to spend more time among family and friends, engaging in hobbies they enjoy, time in nature, and many other more enjoyable activities. So you can see that the value is placed differently. In a growth economy, it's placed on goods. Rather, in a degrowth economy, it's placed on well-being. Degrowth generally advocates for more localized production, with exchange facilitated by local currencies and even non-monetary systems. Both localized production and local currencies may increase the possibility for democratic control over decisions that influence communities, and this ensures that the purchasing power stays within the communities instead of being accumulated by multinational companies which avoid taxes through offshore safe havens. The role of government is also contested among proponents of degrowth. Many recognize the need for a strong central government to regulate production, ensure equitable distribution of resources, income, and wealth accumulation, and of course, provide services like electricity, water, healthcare, education. Yet, on the other hand, some people advocate for more anarchist perspective, suggesting these decisions and services should be left up to local communities. So these are just some of the examples of specific policy positions that proponents of degrowth argue. In the study by Cosme and other authors, they suggest 75 specific policy proposals. Some of these examples include capping resource extraction, limiting production, taxing consumption, limiting advertising, removing fossil fuel subsidies, even creating a universal basic income, eliminating debt so on and so on. You get the idea. There are so many specific policy proposals that can achieve these three goals of degrowth. But all of these proposals are top-down, requiring some action or even willingness by governments to challenge the infinite economic growth paradigm. What about individual actions that people can practice with degrowth in mind? Again, there are many different suggestions, all of which seek to reduce our individual and collective ecological footprint. For example, shopping at a packaging-free store, composting food waste, repairing clothes, buying less, even spending less time consuming digital content. Individual action can also mean contributing to community and grassroots organizations, either as a volunteer or organizer, depending on your interests and skills. 
Communal initiatives may seek to prepare warm meals for those in need. They may also seek to organize community cleanups or restore local ecosystems. This could also mean initiating cooperatives outside of the formal economy, for example, providing childcare or delivery services within your community. Contributing to an organic and regenerative farm is also a very tangible action that one can take. While there are many policy proposals, individual actions that can help to realize the goals of degrowth, there are also some legitimate controversies and implications that we must also address when discussing degrowth. Thus far, the problems with infinite economic growth seem logical. But such an approach like degrowth requires a rethinking of our entire economic and social system. Then is degrowth a solution? Not according to Naomi Klein. Klein is a social activist and author of the books, This Changes Everything and The Shock Doctrine. Yeah, I've been following Klein for years, uh, particularly with through the climate change movement, but she's active across several social and environmental movements. And this is what she had to say about degrowth when asked if it is a solution. Klein says, quote, adopting the banner of degrowth as a goal is a mistake. Just because growth is at the heart of the problem, it doesn't follow that degrowth is the solution, end quote. She argues for replacing GDP with another success metric that captures well-being. She also suggests using the term degrowth is not a smart communication strategy, as so many struggle to meet their existing needs and degrowth signals less than what they have now. Nonetheless, she does suggest that capitalism is at the heart of the problem. You know, what's interesting about degrowth is that it's anti-production. So it targets any capitalistic or socialistic society that does not moderate resource extraction and production. Now, it's quite easy to be critical of any of our current economic systems. It's an entirely different matter to reimagine any of them. With the growth paradigm integrated in our way of conducting business and governing our economy, as well as ingrained in the worldviews of most people, the amount of effort to rethink, discuss, deconstruct, and rebuild entire societies is unimaginable. Ironic, since degrowth in itself calls for decreased complexity. While decreased complexity might be the outcome of all this work, is such a reimagining even possible in our current political and social landscape? Well, uh, possible does remain to be seen, especially with increasing misinformation and the polarizing of politics of the last decade. But it certainly does seem necessary to at least consider how we can reduce our environmental impact and address inequality. Critics of degrowth will argue that it is possible to actually decouple economic growth from environmental impact, that we can maintain economic growth while reducing our environmental impact through technology improvements and efficiency gains as a result of specialized and concentrated increases in production. This is called economies of scale. And there is some evidence that decoupling is already happening. Research by Zeke Hausfather, a climate scientist at the Breakthrough Institute, shows carbon dioxide emissions decreasing as a proportion of GDP. And this decoupling of economic growth and carbon dioxide emissions is demonstrated in at least 30 countries, including the United States, the United Kingdom, and Germany. 
Catherine, I would say that uh, proponents of degrowth do acknowledge that decoupling of economic growth from an environmental impact is possible, yet I think that they would argue that it's insufficient to reduce environmental impact at the scale and scope that we need. So instead of decoupling economic growth from an environmental impact, degrowth proposes a different type of decoupling, that of decoupling resource use from well-being, that we can use less resources while improving overall well-being. This is primarily done through reducing excess and redistributing resources more equitably. Now, when most people hear this, they may think of no more weekend flights to Greece or to the Virgin Islands, no more brunches or all-you-can-eat buffets, or no more caviar and luxury yachts and penthouse apartment parties in New York City. Now, I, I can certainly question some of these things as necessary, but rather, instead of sacrifice, I think degrowth sees a realignment of priorities what many in the movement would say, living simply so others can simply live. Now, remember the research that reviewed degrowth literature by Cosme and other authors? They also provide some critique of degrowth, namely that proponents of degrowth would benefit from providing more clear and specific proposals, summarized as a cohesive plan instead of a hodgepodge of individual actions. They suggest such an approach may identify conflicting or redundant proposals currently found within the movement. They also criticize degrowth for neglecting population growth and the impact that degrowth would have on less developed countries. Lastly, while the degrowth movement advocates for a democratic and voluntary transition away from the economic growth paradigm, there exists many vested interests in maintaining the status quo, especially for national governments and transnational corporations that are benefiting from the current system. A degrowth society will not advantage the existing power structures, so as any widespread effort to change these structures will likely be met with resistance. And this is certainly the case, but one thing I remind our students is that we're part of the system that we seek to change not separate from it. As students, managers, policymakers, consumers, citizens, whatever your role, whatever your agency, we have the power to legitimize or challenge these systems. So instead of simply accepting things the way they are, sometimes it's just as easy to change one small thing in our contexts. Although maybe small, this change can be a part of a larger change in society. Now, we wish to share with you the journey of an alumnus of our institute who has explored and put into practice actions with degrowth in mind, inspired by many and together with his community. Welcome Logan Strenchok to the podcast. Logan enjoys getting his hands dirty, literally, in mixing research and practice in degrowth-inspired experimentation. While living in Hungary, he collaborates with a diverse team across Europe. For example, Logan is the Environmental and Sustainability Officer at the Central European University. He's also a garden team member at a four-hectare organic fruit and vegetable farm in Hungary called Zsenbok Biokert. He has co-founded Cargonomia, a community cargo bike center, and local food distribution point in Budapest. I'll also add that Logan is an alumnus of the IIIEE, graduating from the MESPA Master's Program, an Erasmus Mundus Joint Master's Degree in Environmental Sciences, Policy, and Management. 
Welcome, Logan, to the podcast. Hello, Stephen. It's great to be here today. And I'm uh, speaking today, offering my own opinions, but on behalf of many colleagues and friends who I collaborate with here in Hungary. Yeah, well, well, thanks so much for joining us. And thus far on the podcast, we've discussed the vocabulary of degrowth as a concept, as a political philosophy, a social movement, even a practice, and as a potential economic policy proposal. I'm curious, how do you understand or implement degrowth in your context? Well, degrowth is important as a word, as a concept as well. I think the grounding influence of trying to not only understand better, but accept and start to live according to the principles that in a world of finite resources, the constant pursuit of economic growth is not only not desirable, but not achievable. So if we're starting with this and it's guiding our decisions in life and the things we're participating in, it's a grounding, but also a very honest uh, force or very honest uh, uh, way of thinking to follow. But also, I think the additional narratives which are within the degrowth movement, which is a social movement, an environmental movement, uh, a human rights movement, they really encourage you as a human to think about how you feel about things, how you feel about what you're working on, how you feel about what you're researching, how it's connected to your life outside of your professional life, your personal life. And that's something I think really fresh, refreshing within the movement as well, that it's not just only concrete numbers and physics and mathematics, but it has these human characteristics as well. And this is what really drew me to the narratives within degrowth once I were, was introduced to them. Yeah. So you talk about this component of feelings and these human characteristics. Could you say a bit more about your personal entry point and why is it personally important to you to be part of this movement? My personal entry point was kind of being attracted to some of the issues brought up by degrowth before I even knew what the concept was. So it would have started when I was 19, 20, 21, studying as an engineer in the US, while I became much more aware of the consequences of the society. At the same time, when I was studying something as concrete and mathematical as civil engineering, I was also spending a lot of time, maybe even more time in the library, studying political theory, uh, the history of activism in the United States, uh, philosophy as well. And I was questioning the, the impacts of American society, both within the country I grew up in, but also abroad. And I had the deep feelings within me that what was being sold to people as the idea of the American dream was largely false. And this led me in a direction of wanting to explore this concept of you know, alternatives to this, this false belief that growth is good for everyone and the trickle-down effect of uh, increasing economic growth has benefit, social benefit. And I started looking into what was out there, who were other critics, who, what other movements were there, both research movements, activist movements and practice, which were also bringing attention to this issue. And I eventually found a degrowth. But this part of my curiosity wasn't being fed while just in the engineering course. So I found these other topics in my own reading outside of my own courses. And this led me further along the way. And I continued pursuing this interest afterwards. So you talk about exploring these, you know, concepts of alternatives and not being satisfied. Can you tell us about more about the work that you're currently doing that allows you to both practically and in research explore these concepts of degrowth that you're more interested in? Yeah. And I would preface that by saying that 
it's still a constant search and a constant assessment in the mirror for me. So I'm always working towards getting closer to having the type of influence that I want to, but also using my intellectual and physical capacity on projects which I really believe in the purpose of and participating in projects which have a really honest understanding of their environmental and social impact. And it might have been somewhat difficult to understand what exactly I do based on the introduction because it's a number of very different jobs or tasks or groups put together. But I work as an organic gardener in a four hectare organic farm about one hour from Budapest and I participate in all the physical work that it takes to help grow fruits and vegetables on the farm and also to market them to uh, customers. But the, the reason I really enjoy working on the farm is one, because I believe that sustainable agriculture is one of the only true, it's a true proven pathway, part of the solution within the context of providing stable work, providing work which is part of the remedy in the time of the climate crisis, but also it's a really good mix of a physical and mental challenge, which I like. So I do work on the farm, but I also try to be a link between the farm community and the urban community in Budapest as well. And this is connected to my, my work in the Cargonomia Cooperative, which is a cargo bike logistics center and also a local food distribution point, but also an experimental degrowth center. And so you might ask, what does that mean exactly? What do we try to do? Well, first and foremost, we try to help teach people useful skills which they could use in their everyday life, which will probably help them reduce their own environmental footprint. Of course, bike self-sufficiency is one of the primary focus points of this. So Cargonomia is one example of a number of really creative and really resilient initiatives, which even in not the most opportune circumstances are still operating and trying to reach people and try to inspire people in, in Budapest and outside of Budapest in, in Hungary. And the third aspect of what I do is, is working as the environmental and sustainability officer at CEU. If you asked me, you know, how is this connected to my approach? I really think that we need to use our skills in a uniquely diverse way. I think it's good for us to have physical challenges, mental challenges, and also educational outreach challenges, which put us in front of people. And for me, this is the right balance. I find my balance through having very different tasks, uh, working with very different stakeholder groups day by day, week by week. It keeps life interesting. It keeps life challenging. And I think we need to be able to work in different communities and make a connection between people of different backgrounds, both in the urban setting and in the rural setting as well. And this is what I challenge myself to do. And I'm continually challenging myself to, to do this and get better at this. One of the ways that uh, we actually met was at a training that you provided at the IIIW Alumni Conference. Is that something that you do often, is, is speak with people on, on the issue of degrowth? Yeah, so I use degrowth as a context to provocatively but accurately challenge people's reasoning. It sounds very simple, but to challenge the reasoning for why they're doing what they're doing. So even before we start talking about carbon emissions, even before we start talking about uh, resource consumption. You can impact people very quickly with the simple question of asking them why they're doing what they're doing each day and are they happy doing it? And for me, this is an important question that degrowth asks us, which is, are we feeling fulfilled by what we're doing each day? And are we 
do we have autonomy over the direction of our own lives and exactly. we connect this to our personal life and professional life as well exactly and i think that gets back to very much what you were talking about with the the feelings of wanting to work towards a better life and kind of challenge the overarching paradigms and narratives in our society. I'm curious when you when you engage with people in these forums, what are some of the reactions or responses that you've experienced from others? Well, getting back to, you mentioned the forum I did at the, the Institute. It's very motivational, but still somewhat alarming to me that when you start talking about alternative to constant economic growth, it still is quite an outlier topic, even within supposedly progressive institutions like uh, academic institutions and yeah. universities. Why do you think that is? There's a number of reasons. I think academic institutions by nature are slower to change than we think they are. I think they have a financial concerns, which makes their ability to adapt slower. They're still reliant on parts of the system which we're criticizing to move forward financially. And also, certainly there are some of the most progressive thinkers in the world in universities doing some of the most progressive degrowth research. But there are a lot of faculties, even environmental science faculties, whose research is supported by the system not changing so much or so drastically or acknowledging that this constant pursuit of growth is, is dangerous. So it's, and I'm not putting all of the, the blame on academic institutions. It's just still surprising to me that we're not starting with the basic principles of the incompatibility of constant economic growth in a finite world when we're teaching business, when we're teaching environmental sciences, environmental policy, environmental economics or ecological economics, because we know it has catastrophic consequences. Logan, so maybe in response directly to that, what advice would you give our listeners in their own context, maybe in universities, companies or governments, to implement practices that support degrowth, despite this not being part of the common narrative? I encourage people to read. I encourage people to learn a bit more about the movement. But then I would really challenge someone who is knowledge, becomes knowledgeable about degrowth narratives in academic works to try to connect more with the practical side of degrowth. If you understand some of the base principles of degrowth, like the, the physical limitations of the planet, like the incompatibility of something like the false idea that we could decouple environmental impact or resource consumption from economic growth. If you start using these as the base metrics, you could use them as the base metrics for measuring the impacts of your own life. You could use them as some of the base metrics for analyzing the impacts of your company or your operation. As you go forward in understanding your knowledge of degrowth, you can then use the tools that you pick up to assess what you're involved in, what you're researching, and you can move forward that way. Yeah, so other than economic growth, you know, what are some of the other success metrics that you would suggest or find relevant in moving forward? Yeah, well, there's, there's any number throughout history, throughout recent history and further back for focusing on well-being as opposed to focusing on economic growth as the main metric of pursuit. So we can go all the way back to the the Index of Sustainable Economic Welfare in the, in the late 1980s by Herman Daly, the Genuine Progress Indicator from around 2006, Inclusive Wealth Index, all the way up to something like Gross National Happiness or the Happy Planet Index, or even some of the, the success metrics which in, within the Sustainable Development Goals. But I find really inspiring 
the concepts originally brought up in Kate Rayworth's Donut Economics, because I think Rayworth did a really great job developing a guiding metric for measuring the progress at different scales of a city, of a region, of a collection of countries. But a lot of research has built on the usage, the practical application of this donut economics and how it can be applied at the small city scale, at the regional scale, or at the bigger scale. And I know specifically the Institute of Political Ecology in Zagreb, Croatia, has been doing a lot to build on the original model and actually applying it to help set some policy agendas in their region. And I think this is a very concrete example, which I think has lots of potential. Well, you've certainly given us a lot to think about. It's a shame to end the conversation here, but I'm curious if listeners want to get in touch with you and hear more about your story, how would you suggest them to do so? Well, there's a lot of ways to get in contact with not just me, but the team that I work with here. So you can search for Cargonomia, like Cargo Bike, and Nomia, like Autonomia. Uh, so Cargonomia.hu is our website. If you're interested in small-scale agroecology and organic market gardening, we're Jamboki Biokert. I won't spell that out for you, but you can probably find it wherever you found this podcast listed in a link. And uh, it was quite a challenge to, in a relatively short time, try to say some (laughs) provocative things, but I hope some of what I was able to mention today struck a chord with some of the listeners. Logan, I know that you're representing a lot of people and you've put a lot of thought and effort into the work with Degrowth. We're so grateful for you joining the podcast today. Thanks so much. Wow. Okay. Well, we've certainly covered a lot in this episode, and and rightfully so. The critique of economic growth is nuanced, and degrowth spans many cultures, languages, and entry points for individuals and organizations. This is why degrowth can be seen as a concept, a practice, a social movement, a political philosophy, and a serious set of economic and social policy proposals. If I were to summarize degrowth and what I hope you could take away, It is that degrowth is a critique of economic growth with three overarching goals. And as Logan shared, individual actions with degrowth in mind can include organic and regenerative farming, community cooperatives, etc. As such, degrowth seeks to address the inequalities and injustices perpetrated by capitalism and colonialism, privilege and exploitation. But there are some legitimate criticisms of degrowth. Some question whether it's possible to fulfill basic needs and eliminate poverty without economic growth. Some question whether it's possible to decouple resource extraction and well-being. And whether a transition away from economic growth is even possible without resistance from entrenched powers and paradigms. To respond to these critiques, proponents of degrowth shall offer more specific suggestions and consider perspectives from less developed countries. This episode is intended to be informational with additional resources for you to continue to think critically about economic growth and degrowth. Therefore, we're not advocating for degrowth necessarily, but suggesting it is one proposed solution to environmental degradation and social inequality experienced currently within the economic growth paradigm. We want to take a moment to thank Logan Strenchok for sitting down with us to talk about his experience with degrowth. I know I'm certainly inspired by his story, especially his contribution to the community farm. 
Now, like Logan, if you're interested in a master's program in sustainability, applications are currently open for both our EMP and MESPOM programs. You can find out more information about both programs and how to apply on our website at www.iiwe.lu.se. We also wish to thank our production assistant, Franz Libertson. And of course, thank you for joining us in another episode of Advancing Sustainable Solutions. All right, until next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye.